0: Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. God, we are here to continue to make much of you. Uh, for God, you are uh, truly uh, worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And God, we know that, um, that anything good uh, that is in us as individuals, that is in this church, that is in this town or this country, God, we know that it is all uh, as a result of your hand of blessing. And so God, we thank you that, uh, for the hope that we have in Christ as well. We thank you that, um, that, uh, for the mission that, um, that you'd allowed us to be a part of, that you are in the uh, business of reconciling people, reconciling wayward people like us to yourself so that we can have a relationship uh, with the creator of the universe. What a concept. So, God, we thank you that you um, loved us first. We do love you, and we praise you and glorify you. God, I need you this morning. Um, uh, I've been off a lot. Uh, Lord, I trust your spirit in uh, my preparation. I trust your spirit working in me. Uh, But, Lord, I also ask that that you would just um, help me stand behind your word and uh, not in front of it in any way. And Lord there's so much here um, and I just pray Holy Spirit that you would do what I can't do and that you would um, take your um, holy and um, life transforming word and uh, just apply it uh, through our brains to our hearts that we would be transformed. That we would be ones who know more of your love for us. That we would understand your justice in greater ways. And Lord, that it would just cause us to worship you and live lives of, uh, of worship uh, in submission to you. So have your way with us here this morning, and we give you all the praise and the glory. Guys people say, amen. amen. Good, morning. Good morning. So we are, uh, we are uh, jumping, uh, bouncing through the book of Job. Uh, this is um, our third sermon in a uh, eight-week sermon series. If you're with us um, for the first time, welcome. And church family, it's just—it's I love Sundays. Um, Whether I'm preaching or not, it's just awesome to be with you and to be able to um, worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords together. The One who's all worthy is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Today um, we are going to be navigating through 22 chapters. We'll be going from uh, chapter four through chapter 26, and um, it's yes, it's as ominous as it sounds, and. um, the, uh, so I'm, I'm just. My prayer is is that um, that the Spirit does His work. Um, let me give you just some maybe some ground rules this morning that I didn't give to the first service. And as I saw people walking out of here like uh, sweating profusely and their eyes like going around in circles, um, is have your Bible open to Job, and we'll get started in chapter four. Have your Bible open to, to Job, and uh, or your phone or your your uh, your iPad, and then we'll be looking at lots of other verses. I would, tr- I would not try to go to those verses though, because you'll get lost. Um, if, you, if you're a note taker, just write down the verses. And all the verses um, except for Job should be on the screen. We might have a, a few that are missing. And, um, and I'll try to remember to give you the, the address. If I just start quoting a verse and I don't tell you where it's at, just raise your hand or flick your ear or do something just so I know that, that I missed that. You know, as a church at Windsor Community Church, we're we're committed to what's called um, expository preaching, which is uh, when we come to a particular text or a portion of the Bible, we let the message of that portion of Scripture inform our sermon. Um, In other words, we 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 rarely uh, will come up with a topic and then like search for scriptures to support um, that topic. And we never want to find scriptures just to support our view. We want to stand behind what God's word says. And expository preaching doesn't necessarily mean verse by verse. It doesn't even necessarily mean um, um, paragraph by paragraph. It doesn't necessarily mean um, chapter by chapter or book by book. The Bible is one story from beginning to end. It's got one main character, Jesus Christ. I mean, newsflash that we are not the main characters. Jesus is. And it's one story about Jesus Christ, about the Messiah, about um, the Lord and Savior that um, came to reconcile us to the Father. So uh, the Bible's one story, and, it's, and um, so this type of expository preaching could be done by a message from a large portion of Scripture like this morning, or from smaller portions of Scripture like we normally do. It's important, though, that the passage being taught be in context. So if, you are, if we're teaching a particular verse, it needs to be in context with the paragraph. And the paragraph needs to be in context with the chapter. And the chapter needs to be in context with the particular book. And the particular book needs to be in context with the Bible. Okay? Otherwise, we are taking Scripture and we're applying it in ways God didn't mean us, mean us to apply it. And we, so we call this context. And we're committed to that here. The title of this sermon series is called Searching in Suffering. And if you have ever suffered, um, and I know a lot of you have suffered greatly, um, and those of us that haven't suffered greatly, there's, there's uh, great suffering in our future because we're all going to die and we're going to have loved ones that die. It's called searching in our suffering and that's exactly what we do when we're suffering, do we not? We ask questions. We search for answers. God, why is this happening? Is there, is there anything I did that would cause this suffering? And we'll see Job searching in his suffering. We also see his three friends um, searching for answers for Job's suffering. There's a theme or a melodic line, if you will. If you think of a melody through a song that runs through the entire song, there's a melodic line or theme that runs through the entire book of Job. And this theme is the following, answers in our pain aren't found in asking why, but in knowing who. Answers to our pain aren't found in asking why, but knowing who. And uh, today, we're not going to answer a lot of questions in this passage, actually, in these 22 chapters. And it's a little bit frustrating to me, and it might be frustrating to you, but we're just going to let the book play out and, uh, and, uh, to, to the very end, and I believe that uh, we will see this theme come to a, 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 a bullseye crescendo at the end. So in these chapters today, these 22 chapters, there's three cycles of conversations, And um, and it starts off with Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, um, speaking, and then Job responds, and then Bildad Bildad speaks, another friend, and Job responds, and then Zophar speaks, and Job responds. That's one cycle, and then it happens a second cycle, and then it happens a third cycle. So um, Eliphaz and Bildad speak three times, excuse me, yeah, and Zophar speaks twice. When Job's friends heard, if we go back a couple of chapters, when Job's friends heard of the evil that had come upon Job, remember the evil that came upon Job? Uh, lost all ten of his kids. Um, killed in an instant. Lost his livelihood, his, um, his financial security, um, his entire business. The only things he did not lose was his life and his wife. But when these friends heard of this evil that had come upon Job, they traveled from afar to show sympathy and comfort. Their mission, make no mistake about it, was to come and show sympathy, sympathy and comfort. And they did that. They sat with him for seven days and seven nights. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. They, they saw Job sitting in an ash heap, um, alone and quiet and weeping, and they sat down with him and they grieved and they weeped with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. Why did they do this? The text tells us in chapter 2.13, for they saw that his suffering was very great. These were good friends. These were friends that saw pain, that, that grieved when their friend Job grieved. And then in chapter 3 last week, we saw that after seven days and seven nights of sitting with, their, sitting with his friends in silence, Job opened his mouth. And what came out of his mouth was a heart-wrenching lament. He cursed the day of his birth. He said, why was I ever allowed to be conceived? Why was I ever allowed to uh, survive in my mother's womb? Why was I not uh, stillborn? Why did the mother that received me um, out of the womb um, put me on her knee and breastfeed me? Why did she not abandon me and leave me for dead? Job was in deep, deep pain. And his pain was based on his current circumstances. He was suffering and grieving. And make no mistake, well at the end of chapter 3 he says this, this is his final words in his lament, I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet, I have no rest, but trouble comes. And I've read some commentaries that, um, that I don't agree with after reading other commentaries and studying myself that Job was not in any type of sin, that his lament was not in defiance to God. He was simply and profoundly a man who was in uh, deep pain and suffering. He longed for death. He longed for death. In fact, all of us at some level should long for death. That it is good to hope for. That's what Peter's hope is in. And uh, Paul's hope is in, is in being with Jesus. Him dwelling with us in a place where there's no more pain and no more suffering and no more death. So it's good to long for death. It's not good to take death into our own hands. And Job, as we'll see, will not do that. Job's appearance made his friends sad. But the words that he spoke in chapter 3 made his friends angry. Made his friends livid. Why? Because as as the exchange goes on, Job repeatedly insists that his punishment is not a result of any sin. He insists that he's innocent. And his friends have a worldview that that has no compartment for that. And I would say that we probably have a worldview that has no compartment for that. We would say that if calamity has come upon you, there's probably something you did to deserve that calamity. Let's take a look at the worldview of, of, uh, of his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Number one, they rightly believe that God is absolutely in control of everything. They rightly believed that God is sovereign; that He's in absolute control of everything. We see that confirmed in the first couple of chapters of Job. We see that we see it all over Scripture that God doesn't delegate His rule to anyone. He is in control. Isaiah 45:7 says, "God says, I form light and I create darkness." I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In Psalm 115.3, the psalmist says, Our God is in heaven. He does as He pleases. Proverbs Proverbs 16.9, we all know that. When the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. God is sovereign, and He's in complete control. We're not pawns, but He is in complete control. The second aspect of the worldview that they rightly believe is that God is absolutely just and fair. He's absolutely just and fair. That is correct. Uh, Like Job, they acknowledge the goodness and the justice of God. And throughout these chapters that we're going to look at today, there's an emphasis on God's, God's justice, that he always judges rightly, his friends say. If we do good, we will reap good. If we do evil, we will reap evil. There's an element of truth here, it's proverbial wisdom, and for the most part, it's the way the universe operates, does it not? Some examples, when you live your life in addictions to alcohol, to substance abuse, ruin comes. But sobriety leads to success, diligence leads to prosperity, laziness leads to ruin, It's how things work. If you get drunk and crash your car and injure yourself or others, it's your fault. Psalm 32 says that, he says, when I kept my sins silent, when I didn't agree with God that I was a sinner, it says that my bones wasted away. That when we have unconfessed sin, it actually affects us in a physical way. There's consequences to our unconfessed sin if someone hurts me and I refuse to forgive him and then I nurse resentment and become a hardened, bitter person, it's not going to go well with me and my relationships. There's going to be consequences relationally. So Job's comforters are right that God is just and fair, but they take it too far. They come to to some conclusions that are full of error. You see, we we can stand on truth and we can misuse truth. And that's what his um, comforters do, his friends do. Proverbs is full of these principles. The problem becomes when we take a proverb, which is something meant to give us a principle of how things generally work in this world, and we make it a promise. That's when things go wrong. This can lead to self-righteousness or anger at God. It can also lead to wrong judgment of others as we'll see. How can this lead to self-righteousness? If I believe that everything is what I sow is what I reap, then when good things happen to me, good income, good bank account, good job, well-behaved kids, healthy kids, I take the credit for it. When I believe that the that the principle of sowing and reaping is a promise rather than a principle and things don't go well for me, I get angry at God. Because He's supposed to bless me when I do good. Does that sound familiar? Deuteronomy twenty nine, eleven is probably one of the most misused verses on the planet. It has to do with our salvation. Not our sowing and reaping. Their third, their third, third, uh, third aspect of their world world view, they say because God is in absolute control, and at the same time He is just and fair, therefore He must always punish wickedness, and bless righteous living. This is an error in their worldview. They say that if God were to do otherwise, he would be necessarily unjust, which is inconceivable. Therefore, they say, if you suffer, you must have sinned and are being punished justly for your sin. And presumably, when you're blessed, you must have been good. You see, this is Job's worldview. This is, uh, excuse me, this is Job's comforter's worldview. Both sides of their system lie deep in our hearts. They lie deep in the hearts of the church in America. Dare say, I in my own heart, in in our hearts. One side of their argument: if I do good, then good will be returned. We see this in the classic movie, *The Sound of Music*. Remember the captain? Uh, In the earlier service, I said I said uh, Captain Von Trump, but it's actually. But that was a foot in (laughs) slip. It's Captain Von Trapp, this, this, this handsome, debonair, uh, successful man, falls in love with the nanny, with Fraulein Maria. Falls in love, and then she sings this song. Does anybody remember the song? I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> she says, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. so dangerous to think that blessings that come to us have anything to do with our goodness. So they falsely believe that. Job's comforters would agree with what Julie Andrews is saying there. The other side of the comforter's worldview surfaces again and again, even today, and this one says, I fear I must have done something wrong because God has punished me. I was speaking to a man earlier that had a son who died, and he said that, um, that that crossed his mind, "Did I do something wrong for my son to die, and then he realized that was a lie. He realized that there was nothing that he did that would cause God to kill his son, and we'll actually unpack this further as we go along. Psalm 34 tells us that both the righteous and the wicked have afflictions. We'll develop this further as we go along as well. In these three cycles of conversations over 22 chapters, Job's comforters drive Job into deep despair. They put him in a place of having to defend his innocence. So the question that we're going to examine today in these passages is, um, I think on your bulletins it says, do we reap what we, des- that w- what we sow? And I want to actually change that even after the first service, and it's, do we always and ultimately reap what we sow? Do we always and ultimately reap what we sow? And you know what? We can know up front, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that the nine chapters of Job's friends, these 22 nine chapters, that everything they say is absolute garbage. It's absolute falsity, and how do we know that? Not because Dan Hardy says it, but because God says it. In chapter forty-two, verse seven, God says it at the very end. I'm giving you the end of the book. God said, "My anger burns against you, Eliphaz, and your two friends, for you have spoken of me what is uh, you have not spoken of me what is right." as my servant Job has. So it's important to set the context right up that what Job is saying is not wrong. And what his friends are saying is absolutely wrong. The Lord siding with Job against the claims of the friends is evidence that the book as a whole argues against retribution... Even though it's accurate in general terms, it does not explain all that occurs in the world under divine control. So let's, take, let's start by taking a look at Eliphaz's response to Job in chapter 4. And, and Eliphaz pretty much re- represents the other two guys. They're all saying the same thing in similar ways. And we'll look at a few of the other statements from the other, the other dudes, but we'll focus on um, Eliphaz a little bit before we make some application. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So again, I just encourage you to keep your Bible open to Job. And um, if I forget to mention the address, let me know. Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. After sitting with Job and grieving with him for seven days and seven nights in the trash heap, they're apparently done with Job. Their patience, their sympathy has worn out. Eliphaz, in essence, is saying, Job, you have comforted and you have strengthened many over the years. In fact, you are very good at it. I don't understand, Job, why you are acting this way. Why are you so impatient? Why are you so dismayed that he has absolutely no compassion or empathy? You see, Eliphaz is asking um, armchair questions and making armchair observations. What he should really be doing is be making wheelchair, asking wheelchair questions and wheelchair observations. It's called empathy. Empathy. When we, when we sit back in our chair observing people and their suffering and giving them theological platitudes without compassion and mercy, it is an unwise use of the sword of God's Word. It's always to be administered with love and compassion and empathy. There was a time when before we had kids, my sister Teresa had the first child, Ashley. I think Ashley's a year and a half older than my oldest, Natalie. And I remember being in a restaurant, and Ashley is like just trashing the restaurant. I mean, there's food everywhere and water spilled over. And, and you know, my sister's just, you know, doing what all irresponsible young moms do. No, I'm just kidding. She was, uh, she was doing her best, and I'm, I'm sitting there in my armchair, no kids. Go, my kid will never do that. My kid will never do that. Um, the um, another another example would be um, my as I mentioned last week my sister in law Lori has been in the hospital uh, since the beginning of December she's coming home and she's coming home to uh, uh, on a stretcher uh, being laid in bed with a um, hoyer to get her out of bed into the wheelchair out of the wheelchair um, onto the pot um, and. Um, and that's and it's hard. It's hard for my wife. It's hard for um, their other. It's hard for my father-in-law. And I found myself last week um, having armchair questions, like, "Would you just stop being anxious and fearful and trust the Lord?" Rather than putting myself in their position and really empathizing uh, with where they're at. So that's these these guys. All three of them are making armchair observations and asking. Armchair questions. Then in verses 7 through 9 in chapter 4, Eliphaz says, Remember, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. He's saying that the innocent perished, God would not be just. If bad things happen to good people, God would not be just. God rewards people for their goodness. Eliphaz was saying, and I think we can all say the same thing at some level. We we have drank that Kool Aid that, that that is always the case. And if you distill these chapters down that we're looking through today into just a, a couple of verses that would characterize the worldview of, Job, of Job's friends, it would be uh, the summary would be that you is that you reap what you sow, Job. Those who plow iniquity, and those who sow trouble, reap it. And as we look at chapter 5 now, verses 8 and 9, and verses 17 through 18, Eliphaz says, As for me, I would see God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And in 17 and 18, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hand heals. He is is encouraging Job to humble himself under God's discipline. When what we know as readers, this side of it, is that God is not disciplining him because of any sin. And Job knows the same thing. Verse 8 starts off, if it were me, Job, this is what I'd do. And then verse 17, he tells them that God's discipline yields good fruit and eventually happiness, so don't resist God's discipline. Is this true? Yes, it's true. Is this true for Job? No, it's not true for Job. You see what damage we can do just slinging around Scripture? What he's basically quoting is Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. It's true. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. And then in, in uh, Hebrews 12, 11. Oh, gosh. Oh, there we go. For the moment, for this moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A takeaway here today, folks, is that God's discipline is always loving. It's never this side of the end of the age. It's never out of anger. It's never out of wrath. And then in chapter 8 verses 4 through 7, we'll take a look at Bildad. And Bildad says this, what a dear friend Bildad is. Speaking of Job's dead children, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will only seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. He makes the same argument that Eliphaz does and infers that there must be some sin in Job's children or in Job as a a parent for that to happen to his kids. And then he preaches one of the first prosperity gospel messages on record. He was way ahead of TBN. He says, if you just repent and live a pure and upright life, he will bless and restore you. Is there anybody more upright and blameless? than Job. There is nobody. He is the greatest man on the planet at that time. Bildad says that God is somehow obligated to bless good behavior. Now I'm not condoning bad behavior at all. But we're going to take a little bit different slant on this as we go through it. You look at chapter 11, verse 6, we'll get a glimpse into um, Zophar's beautiful personality. Second half of verse 6. He says, know then, I can just picture with a finger pointed at Job, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. What he's saying is, is that um, quit your whining, Job. God hasn't even given you what your sin deserves. Sure, you lost your kids. Sure you lost your job, all your money, your security. You still got a wife and a life, don't you? What kind of friend is that? When we look at chapter 18, verses 2 through 5, we get Bildad again. Oh, Bildad. "'How long will you hunt for words?' he says to Job. "'Consider, and then we will speak. "'Why are we counted as cattle? "'Why are we stupid in your sight?' He's getting defensive." You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flames of the fire do not shine. Bildad is indicating that only evil men face earthly disasters. He is tired of listening to Job and basically tells Job to shut his trap and listen. And he says there's an order to the universe. Things work a certain way. And he says, should this order be disrupted by you, Job? Should a rock be removed out of its place for you? It's an indisputable rule that the wick of the wicked, the light, the flame of the candle, the light of the wicked be put out. If everything isn't just and fair right now, if it's not tit for tat, if it's not rewarding good now at this time, if it's not punishing evil at this time, then God must not be just. You see, we know in Psalm 34 that both the righteous and the wicked are afflicted. And not necessarily because of their sin. Chapter, uh, excuse me, John chapter 9 verses 1 through 3, you remember the story about Jesus passing the blind man and the disciples asking, why is he blind? And it says, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man sinned or did his parents sin? They were retributionists. Who sinned that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, his ways are truly higher than our ways. At the end of the day, remember that the the, the theme that runs through this is that the answers in our anguish are not found in asking why, but in knowing who. And we're going to see that become clearer and clearer as we go through this. So Job's friends are correct in saying that God is just and fair. God will punish all sin. Paul says it in Galatians 6-7. He says, do not be deceived, speaking to Christians. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here's where the error is. Paul's not talking about reaping today. He's not talking about um, what we sow today is going to be reaped today. He's referring to the end of the age. Their friends are in error, and their error is not understanding the when and the who will be punished. Let's go back and take a quick look at Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Eliphaz says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Listen to this verse 8 as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish. Eliphaz is using an agricultural analogy here. He says, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. He's saying, if you sow one thing, you will not get another. For example, if you sow corn, you will not get wheat. And so it is with our moral actions. We typically reap what we sow. The world's not a random place. It does have order. Actions have consequences, and consequences correspond to the actions. However, what Eliphaz is saying here, and what the other friends are saying here, and what they miss is of utmost importance. This is key. The harvest, the ultimate punishment and pouring out of wrath on wickedness is at the close of the age, and not until then. God's justice will be exercised. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 13. Starting in uh, verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to punish it now? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then Jesus actually gives an interpretation of this parable a few verses down in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and he interprets this to the disciples. His disciples came and said to him, we have no idea what you just said. They say, explain to us this parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, it's God. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, believers. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, those who are not believers. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will see His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And He will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Job's comforters are making a big mistake. They have a false understanding of the principle of retribution, or the principle of what you sow is what you reap. They're making a valid argument, assuming Job had sinned. And they might be right when they appeal to Job to repent, however, they must remember that Job is blameless. We see it twice in chapter 1, once from the narrator, once from the Lord, and we see it from the Lord in chapter 2, that Job is blameless. Blameless. And Job responds to his friends, I'm not going to read these verses because of time, but in chapter 6, verses 24 through 30, Job continues to insist on his innocence. Job isn't saying he's sinless, but he's saying he's innocent, that that my sin does not line up with the consequence. I've examined myself, he's saying, and there is no sin that is aligned with with this calamity in Job chapter 10 verses 1-7 through Job continues to recognize that God is in control of his calamity he says according to your knowledge God I am indeed guilty yet there is no deliverance from your hand he's lamenting again he says God I know you're in control but please have mercy on me get me out of this hedge of calamity and then Job 26, 1-4, through four, this is Job's uh, final chapter. We're actually going to look at Job chapter uh, 27 through I think 30 next week which is Job's closing arguments. But that starts a whole other section of the Scripture. In chapter 26, we're left at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of this, uh, of these conversations, these three cycles. And the questions are still unanswered on how God can allow the innocent to suffer. But we're going to see here in these next few verses that Job gives us an example of what to do in moments of doubt. What do we do in moments of doubt? He knows that his only hope is in the Lord. And uh, his answers are distant as they may seem to be. And, but they're only going to be found, his answers are only going to be found in knowing who God is. Job in this moment of disaster knows that the wisdom of his friends has failed And there is a motive from the Almighty that runs deeper than reciprocity. That there is a motive from the Almighty who causes affliction that is is unknowable right now. It it may be unknowable until eternity. Romans 8.28 says that God does work. He works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We may not ever know the good. We need to know the good one, though. And He is the one that will help us get through it. In Job 13, verses 15 through 16, summary says, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Though He slay me, I want to come before Him. Even though He slays me, even though He's just, even though He is sovereign and in control, I will hope in Him. He is the only one that I can hope in. He is the only one that is immutable and is unchangeable. And then in Job 16, 12, uh, and then in verses 19 through 21 in chapter 16, he says that God is is shaking me by the neck. Like a a chicken, he's shaking Job by the neck. But he says, but but even now, even in that shaking, even in that beatdown that I didn't deserve, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. And then in a beautiful chapter of faith, Job 19, verses 25 through 28, I actually want to read this, Job nineteen twenty five through 28, I'm in Matthew, darn it, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's hoping for heaven, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how, we will pursue him. And the root of the matter is found in him. Job is He's saying that I know my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. That Jesus is his, he doesn't know Jesus, but he knows that there is an advocate. There is an attorney that is um, advocating on his behalf. That knows he's innocent. That's standing in front of the Father and saying that he's innocent. Job knows that his only hope is that he trusts the one who has afflicted him. And in spite of all of his questions, he knows that he needs an advocate. He knows that he needs a vindicator. He knows that he needs someone to intercede for him and to bear witness for him. What Job only knew in part, you and I know in fullness. We know the story. We know that Jesus stood in our place. We know that Jesus argues for us. But not on the basis of our righteousness, on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. He, Jesus argues for us not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of His goodness. The evidence is not in our performance, but His performance. You see, the Father and Son win the case, and we are vindicated. There's nothing that you can do that is bad enough to be banished or punished by God the Father if you know Jesus Christ, if you put your full faith and trust in Him. And we're going to see this as Job continues to unfold in the coming weeks. Just a few closing thoughts. As Christians were to I would I would and this might sound heretical up front, so you gotta stay with me. As Christians we should not be motivated by the the retribution principle. What we sow is what we reap. That is, we should not be motivated by it. Actually, we should not um, live by it in our relationship to the Lord. Yes, be wise with your finances. Yes, um, be wise with your eating. Yes, be wise with raising your kids. Yes, be wise in your marriage. But if we live by and are motivated simply by the biblical principle of sowing and reaping, we're going to be constantly twisted around and taking credit for the good things and being angry at God for the bad things. You see, if what motivates me is the retribution principle is that I do good and good comes. When good comes, who gets the credit? You see, when I live by the retribution principle that when... Um, when when I blow it, that God is going to unleash His rage on me. I'm going to be in perpetual anger against God. Here's where the secret is. Here's how to live. Here's how to be motivated. And we see this in Job's life. It's to, it's to understand the cross of Christ. To understand that the innocent died for the guilty. That he who knew no sin, the innocent one, became our sin, the guilty ones, so that we might become the innocent ones, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. I love this verse in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. It says, "There there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus and you're feeling condemned, that's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy. The Lord convicts of sin, but He doesn't condemn. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see, we couldn't be good enough. We couldn't sow enough good seeds to earn standing with God. We couldn't sow enough good seeds to avoid reaping eternal punishment. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He became our sin, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the sowing and reaping principle, So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You see Job's friends had no room for the cross in their theology. The innocent must suffer so that the guilty will not ultimately suffer. And I want to close with this. Job's comforters did not love or have compassion for Job. It lasted about seven days and seven nights. And you know, sometimes that's all I've got. I found myself at times, like when people are in crisis, like really willing to jump in there and, and be the pastor that maybe they need at that time. But I have I've found I've got an end to my compassion. I've got an end to my empathy. But you know, Jesus' compassion never fails it never ends. And I'm thankful for that that when I fail, he never fails. Job's comforters do not know how to love or have compassion for Job, and because they don't love Job, they don't understand Job. The comforters are seeking to be understood. They're throwing out a theological platitudes, and they want Job to grab a hold of them. Instead of being empathetic and compassionate. You see, this happens in, this is the crux of all dysfunctional relationships. When I am um, seeking, when I want you to understand me more than I want to understand you, that's when sympathy and compassion ends. In my relationship with my wife that happens. That I, I want her to understand me instead of me seeking to understand her. And instead of empathy and compassion, these friends provide judgment and condemnation. And just a quick word on judgment, and then I'm going to read you a, a real short story that in the last service, it, it, it was like 20 minutes is all. No, it's, it's, about, it's like three or four minutes. Um, just a, a word on rightly du- judging, because um, Job's friends wrongly judged Job. Um, Job was blameless. What he was incurring had nothing to do with his sin. But don't think that we're not supposed to judge each other. We are. In 1 Corinthians, it says, what do you have to do with judging outsiders? We're not to judge those that are are outside the church, big C church. We're to judge one another. Did you know that? We first, though, take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of the other person's eye. And we want to rightly judge one another before suffering. If 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 or before God's discipline, if I'm, if I'm living a life of sin, if you see patterns of sin in my life and God's disciplined me for my sin and now I'm in sorrow because of the discipline, that's not the time to point out my sin. It's before I start suffering. And so, so we are to rightly judge one another. That is the most loving thing we can do for one another, um, uh, uh, this side of suffering. And there might be a time when somebody's suffering to, to maybe ask the friend if God, if God is bringing something to the surface, if there's some kind of sin. But you never, you never um, um, accuse them of that because you don't know their heart. All right, I want to finish with this story. This is a nurse that wrote this, a believer. And she says this, she says, every day, d- disease eroded her youthful loveliness. And every minute, her mother stood at her bedside and cherished her. My patient was a teenage girl. And when jaundice, swallow- jaundice swallowed her face to a mustard color, her mother massaged her skin with jasmine lotion. When her eyes, vacant and bloodshot, darted about the room in delirium, her mother papered the walls with photographs and piled favorite toys around her. The ventilator creaked inside, and beloved songs filled the room. In language approaching poetry, her mother refreshed remote memories. Moments alive with the seashore and laughter, a fire with the distant vibrancy of the girl she treasured. The day my patient died, her mother climbed into the hospital bed with her. She wrapped her arms around her and clutched her to herself, enfolding her in the same warmth she knew as an infant. Her tears streaming, she gripped her, prayed, and issued promises into her ear. As we witnessed a heart flayed open, we abandoned all pretense of professionalism, all of us. Nurses, doctors, physicians in training, we cried with her. Years later, the author says, I still ache when I remember the depth of this mother's love and the rawness of her grief. Yet in the midst of her tenderness, another memory haunts me. The day before the patient died, her mother crumbled into a hospital room chair and held her hand in her, head, her head in her hands. Her eyes searched the ground. She knew the end was near. Her courage was fraying. I put my hand on her shoulder, and after a long silence, she spoke. She said, I kept begging God to take my heart out to keep it from breaking she whispered her voice trembled but i don't even know if he's listening anymore my family says that this happened to her because i stopped going to church they say god is punishing me she pleaded she raised her eyes and she pleaded with me what if all of this is my fault when i remember her anguish i struggle with my own anger Anger toward anyone who would destroy a woman already so crushed in spirit. I also regret that I did so little for her. That time of my life was mired in antagonism. And so, although I held her and shared in her heartache, I could offer no words of consolation. If I could return to that moment, I would pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal her preciousness to her. With my arms around her, I would pray for her to know the Lord is not a God of ruthfulness but, as one, of boundless mercy, but as, as one of boundless mercy of sovereignty and grace beyond our imagination. In, the crippling, this fragile, in crippling this fragile woman's resolve, the family damaged her already tenuous relationship with God and reduced suffering to a simplistic penalty reward system. They committed the same transgression as Job's miserable comforters who argue that Job suffered devastating losses as punishment for some great evil he refused to acknowledge. They rationalize that as God is both sovereign and just, He always punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. They reason if you suffer calamity, you must have done something wrong. Brothers and sisters, as we close off here, that yes, there, there are consequences for sin. Even on this side of the cross, there's consequences for sin. But it's not God's judgment. It's not God's condemnation. It's not God's punishment. It's not God's wrath. It is His loving discipline. And sometimes that loving discipline hurts to bring us back in the fold. And when we see one another suffering, let's be ones who suffer when others suffer who grieve when others grieve. And let's not assign guilt or motive or accuse that there must be a reason for your suffering. Let's first grieve. Let's first suffer with them. Let's be led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and let the Lord Jesus Christ minister to those in suffering through us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we bless you. And that, Lord, we know that um, there there is uh, conflicting truths in our limited understanding. For God, we know that you can have nothing to do with evil; that you are not the author of sin. But we also know that you are in full control; that nothing happens without your authorization, without you signing off on it. And so Lord, that uh, that dichotomy will probably be with us until you return. But in the meantime, Lord, we want to focus on the twin truths that you are both good and you are just. And your justice says that every sin, that every Human being who are who is a son or daughter of wrath, uh, uh, of wrath must uh, their sin must be punished. All of us. But I thank you that in your goodness, in your loving kindness, that you provided your son as a propitiation, that for a a, a sacrifice that would take all of your wrath that would take all of your condemnation so that we would never have to receive your wrath. So God, I pray that this church, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, standing firm on your word, that we would be a church of healing. First and foremost, that we would be a gospel-centered church, Lord, that we would administer the gospel of Jesus Christ to every heart and every soul to one another as believers and to those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus. So God, we ask that you would just uh, receive our uh, sacrifice of praise here as we uh, sing to you the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise.